friends, colleagues. I'm Gideon Rosen. I'm the chair of the Humanities Council here at Princeton. And it is, as always, a great pleasure to welcome all of you to this year's Belknap Lecture. The program of Belknap Lectures in the Humanities was inaugurated in 1984 with the visit of Eudora Welty. Since then, the roster of Belknap visitors reads like a who's who in the arts. I.B. Singer, Nadine Gordimer, Roy Lichtenstein, Arthur Miller, Merce Cunningham, this is only a partial list. Harold Pinter, Maurice Sendak, Richard Serra, Chuck Close, Twyla Tharp, Meryl Streep, Ian McEwen, and last year, Alice Waters. For more than 20 years, we have taken this occasion to express our gratitude to the family and friends of Chauncey Belknap, who endowed this program in his memory, and to tell you a little bit about the man himself. Orphaned at the age of three, Chauncey Belknap graduated from Princeton in 1912, and then from the Harvard Law School, after which he served as law secretary to Oliver Wendell Holmes at the Supreme Court. During World War I, Lieutenant Belknap worked with General Pershing and George Marshall to supervise the movement of American troops in France. In his papers, Marshall describes Belknap as, quote, an interesting example of the rapidity with which an American can adapt himself to the performance of an intricate and difficult task without, alas, saying what made Belknap such an interesting example of the type. I wish there were more to that story, but I don't know that there is. He was discharged as a major and awarded the French Legion of Honor. A lawyer for more than 60 years, he was a partner in the firm of Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler until his death at the age of 92. He was general counsel to corporations and to the Metropolitan Opera. He represented the Rockefeller Foundation for more than 40 years. He met his wife, Dorothy, in Egypt, where he had been dispatched by John D. Rockefeller to see about setting up a, an archaeological institute. During the McCarthy period, he organized legal support for professors who were under attack. As a member of Princeton's Board of Trustees for more than 20 years, he was a tireless champion of co-education in the university. I'd like to acknowledge and thank the members of the Belknap family who are present today, children, grandchildren, great-grandchild. Thanks to all of you. It's terrific to have you back at Princeton. I am confident that Mr. Belknap would be pleased by the visitors who have been invited in his name. Your presence here today is testimony to your interest in today's speaker. To introduce this year's Belknap lecturer, let me introduce Claudia Brodsky from the Department of Comparative Literature. Um, I'm sort of an unlikely person to introduce David Simon because I'm not really a TV hound, uh, which says something about the work of David Simon right off the bat, but let me just explain how I got up here. Um, I don't watch network uh, cop shows, um, so it is entirely fitting, I think, that I have the honor to introduce David Simon to you today. I didn't and still don't subscribe to HBO, so it was entirely fitting, I think, that I drove at breakneck speed from Princeton one evening to Manhattan's Film Forum. That was last year, with the specific aim of persuading David Simon to consider speaking here at Princeton. Simon was appearing then at the Film Forum in combination with a showing of Kubrick's Paths of Glory, itself um, shown in coordination with the Penguin re-edition of Henry Cobbs's novel of that name, and Simon had written uh, really an extraordinarily 
I think, superb analytic introduction to that work and was there for that reason. But my heading to the film forum that evening was the natural sequel, at least for me, to the success of Sleepless Nights. I had spent the previous summer watching, if you can call what I was doing, just watching uh, The Wire, the complete disc set of which I had spied, fittingly enough, on the bookshelves of a well-known writer and former Princeton faculty member in whose house I was staying at the time. Uh, over the years of, uh, of the seasons, of its seasons, uh, extending from 2002 to 2008, I had read many newspaper reviews of The Wire, but never seen any part of it uh, before those disc-filled nights when I told myself, as I'm sure many of you have done, repeatedly, just one more episode. <laughs> just one, you know. It never quite worked that way, really. I had to fall fast asleep before I finally said, okay, I've given up. Uh, uh, I gave up before they did on complete, I'm, I'm really enticing me. The reviews I had read, and I read many of them, I get a lot of my movies through the newspapers, and the reviews I read all commended the wire for, the, you know, in the cliches of gritty realism or its equivalent, and all the conventional values associated with that generic term that is, uncensored language and frank depictions of violence, corruption, dysfunction, unemployment, poverty, and power, and of course what the papers called explicit sex, which in The Wire was as much single sexual as heterosexual, monoracial as biracial, drunk or stoned or as sober, but always, yes, explicit, if by that one means filmed without the filter of any glamour and of what we think of as romance. But those reviews were not written by David Simon, nor by his co-writers on The Wire, and so they gave me no hint of what I was about to hear and see. To say, as some TV commentators have, that there has never been anything like The Wire on serialized television before is probably accurate enough. I wouldn't really know. Yet I thought, as the discs or volumes of The Wire unrolled before me, it was also an insufficient comment because neither has there been anything in any genre of any representational medium quite like The Wire before. That would be something which is not, that, that something which there hasn't been before would be something which is not just great storytelling, scripting, and acting, all of them. The enactment of writing that compels you out of pure interest to understand it, that makes no concessions to its audience, not through a studied esotericism of its own, but just the opposite, an intense social centrism, a narratively unframed and omnisciently unmediated implementation of the words, syntax, timing, and intonation with which people in specific social situations speak. Not only does, does the something that is the wire do that, but it presents an intersection in those words of imagination um, with which people in specific social situations um, speak, but no one, but no one, not of one, but of one among several characters, not one type, but also its anti-type, characters we never quite know completely, um, and that who they themselves don't seem to know completely. Um, one thing about The Wire, which you all may have noticed, is it never relies on racial stereotypes in the intersections of these characters. In fact, there's one extremely, which is not common in American TV, to say the least. And if I 
I may be right, may be wrong about this, but I think there's only one moment in which um, McNulty um, tries to rely on racial stereotype in order to sort of convince a suburban uh, white cop to be complicit with him, and uh, instead is singularly rebuffed by the cop who then introduces him to his uh, black um, uh, policeman wife. And so much for that. That was the one bit of editorializing on those ideas that I found on The Wire. Each season of The Wire famously focuses on one, uh, one social institution, and documentarians whom I admire very much have done that as well. But Simon alone, to my knowledge, combines Weber and Goffman with Balzac and Aeschylus through his imagination of real life. Institutional analysis and institutional socio-immersion with fictional composition in which the tragedies are real tragedies among friends, between enemies, within families, between generations, and the comedies are real comedies right alongside them. Not only the uncensored repartee among characters who discover every day they have not seen it all, but the faux pas of shooting on a Sunday and required replacement of the target's grandmother's church hat, and certainly one of the best moments in the wire. I, yes. It was Aristotle, uh, two centuries after Aeschylus, who famously defined man in his politics. Aeschylus, with whom I think, in a strange way, the wire shares much. Um, in his politics, book one, chapter two, define man as the, of course, the political or social animal, adding immediately thereafter that man is the only animal whom nature has furnished with the faculty of language. Language that is not only the emission of sounds indicative of pleasure or pain, according to Aristotle, but rather language that can state what is, quote, advantageous and disadvantageous, just and unjust. Just as man alone, says Aristotle, can perceive good and evil, just and unjust alone. Comparing the imaginative representations of life and death in inner city Baltimore with that of ancient dynasties, such as those portrayed by Aeschylus, may seem far-fetched to David Simon, just as he may modestly balk at other praise of him. I remember him modestly balking when he was just granted last year the MacArthur Award. Um, but I do think that that definition of man as being both inherently political and inherently linguistic is one at least with which he would have to agree. Thank you. I introduce David Simon. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Jeez, that's a better TV show than I thought. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and watch it. Um, I, this is my second time. Thank you very much for letting me uh, uh, be part of the Belknap Lecture Series. Uh, it's quite an honor. It's the second time I've been to your campus. The first time I was on a panel uh, with, the, with the mayor of Philadelphia, actually, uh, discussing urban issues. And I remember that, that I was the pessimist and somehow the mayor of Philadelphia was the optimist, so you know, I don't know what to make of that. Hopefully this, this evening will make a little more sense. Um, so Belknap Lecture, I thought, wow, Princeton, what am I gonna do? You know, if, I'm, if I'm usually, if it's, a, if it's a cavalcade of wire fans passing before me, uh, 
uh, we usually get into some how cool is Omar type discussions. And, you know, and, 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 and Stringer Bell is for the ladies, you know, but, but that doesn't seem appropriate uh, to an Ivy. Um, so then I, I moved on there in, in my mind to another topic that I'm often, I often find myself droning about, which is uh, the state of journalism. I used to be a newspaper reporter, and uh, I'm fairly passionate about what's happened to newspapers, but I, I figured... You know, most it's not going to be a newspaper audience, and it's it's a little early and it's still happy hour. So anybody left who's working as a reporter is at the bar now. So that didn't seem like it was going to play. And then I thought about politics, but whenever I get get going on politics and 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 governance and and how power and money are, are routing themselves in in this brave new world, I always end up on real down notes. I end up, uh, you know, quoting. Camus and, and resistance, rebellion, and death, and, and people just start to, you know, and, and I leave, I just leave a trail of bitterness behind me. So then I thought, well, maybe I go deep, you know, maybe I, maybe I talk about you know, Kant and critique of pure reason and, and uh, Hegel and, and his dialectic and their influence on classical Marxism and how Marxist critique of capitalism is really embedded in the wire and. and <laughs> You know, back up off me, Princeton. You know. <laughs> back up, Chauncey Belknap. But then I realized that, you know, it came to me a moment later that um, I went to the University of Maryland. I had a B-minus average. I was a general studies major. Uh, I've, I've skim-read Kant. I have not read Hegel. I'm not sure I'm using the word dialectic correctly. <laughs> um, so we're back to television. Um, uh, it's an accident that I'm in television. I, I was trained as a journalist. Um, I would have been happy to have ended uh, my run as a journalist. Um, things happened to journalism that were uh, problematic, and I somehow gravitated by accident to, uh, to writing television. Um, at first, it was a lark. It was a chance to uh, work on this network show, Homicide, that was based on a book I wrote. And it really was a paycheck. Um, while I was trying to finish a second book called The Corner, uh, I was struggling with the, um, with, the, with, the, with the manuscript and trying to get it down to length and fighting with it. And my paper had a buyout, and the paper was going in a direction I didn't like. And, and they were offering me a good bit, of, a shocking amount of money, actually, to write for television on this show that was filming in my city that was roughly based on a book I wrote. It seemed like a natural one-year, two-year gig. And, and I have to say, for the first five years I was in television, I continued to refer to myself as a journalist. Um, television was uh, apostasy, if you were a print journalist. Um, we referred, uh, and, and my, my, my saintly 88-year-old mother uh, has entered the room to hear me speak for probably the first time since my bar mitzvah. And, and, you know, that sort of inhibits me because, you know, in no way that, that Princeton would inhibit me from using profanity, but now I'm sort of caught unawares <laughs> knowing that my mother will be hearing this. But we referred to cameras, tele even for television news, we referred to the actual cameras in the newsroom as asshole magnets because while you would quote people and get uh, almost human nuance uh, in, in plausible amounts when you, were, when you were working as a print journalist, as soon as the front light went on on that camera on a Baltimore street corner, people who 
a moment earlier had been behaving in an intelligent way, or vaguely intelligent way, um, became performers in, in the worst kind of way. And, and, and reality began to, to morph into something that, that you would describe as, as, as only, you can only describe as television. So I had complete contempt for it. The fact that I was now using it for a paycheck and writing some scripts and, and learning it on a very good network show, a show that, I, you know, in many ways I was very proud to work on it, uh, was a source of vague embarrassment. Uh, and I certainly didn't think I would be staying in television. Um, and something then happened, which I think is the real, is the reason that I get invited to do gigs like this suddenly, is that suddenly television changed and nobody really thought about what was changing until it had already happened. There was no plan, just like I had no plan to become a television writer or a producer. Um, if I'd had a plan, it would have, you know, think about it, it's, it's fairly ridiculous. It's uh, first go and be a police reporter for 12 years, you know, then write a book, then have an A-list director buy it, then have him make it into an NBC show, then have him, he hires you. You know, you can imagine what it's like when people, young kids come up to me and they say, how can I get into television? You know, I'm like, oh God, you know, don't ask me. But what happened, which was, you know, just who knew, was that the, the, the basic revenue stream, the economic model for television, which is the most common medium in American life, um, was transformed in the last 20 years, 15 years. Um, before premium cable and before the idea of cable, um, you bought your television set and then everything was subsidized. Everything was, you know, free. You know, the programming was free. It was all subsidized through advertising. Advertising was the revenue. Well, if the advertising is king, and it certainly was king, then every bit of programming uh, in American television was designed to sell you stuff uh, as fast as they could. Stuff that you needed, stuff you didn't need, uh, stuff you didn't know you needed. Um, and to do it at, you know, at first at 20-minute intervals, then at 18-minute intervals, then at 16, and, and finally I think we're down to 12 now. You know, uh, when I, when I, a little aside, when I started writing TV, there, were four, there was a teaser and four acts in network TV. Four acts because at every 15-minute mark or every 14-minute mark, that, you know, here come the ads. Uh, they told me at the time that this was a wonderfully optimum way to deliver drama. For, it's, it's excellent. But, you know, and there were all these explanations as to why it was perfect for drama, as opposed to being perfect for advertising. And then sometime after I got out of it, uh, they, went to, they went to 12 minutes. They went to five acts and, and, and four commercial breaks, or five, including the teaser. And I was talking to a young writer who had worked on a couple of network shows, and he was explaining to me as why five acts was the best way to you know, and there, therein you have it. it you know, the, the programming was what they wrapped around the ads to keep you watching the ads. Well, if, if that's the case, then they need the maximum amount of eyeballs on television at all times because you're, you're only going to get the highest ad rates if you have the biggest audiences. Well, how do you keep an audience? Well, you, know, you have very pretty women and they have larger and larger breasts and you, you blow stuff up. Uh, at regular intervals, and you, you have ticking time bombs. You have people who are, you know, have, you know, on some level a gun to their heads that you're not going to take away, and you're going you're gonna to heighten that moment at every point when you go to a commercial break so that people will come back. You know, that's no way to tell an adult story. Um, and so television for the first 
50, 60 years was a very juvenile medium, medium in terms of storytelling. There were exceptions. And certainly there were exceptions in the beginning before anyone figured out how to maximize profit. You know, but nobody was rushing to do Playhouse 90 in 1975 or 1985. And, and, and television went its way happily making more money than anyone had ever seen before in terms of ad revenue. And so television was not a respectable place to go if you were interested either in uh, chasing the true, um, chasing things that you thought were relevant as, as uh, political discourse or, or social discourse. And it certainly wasn't uh, the place to go if you wanted just to be a dramatist. You know, I'm, I'm going to care passionately about these, uh, these uh, characters and, and this universe I'm creating but I'm going to stop every 12 minutes to sell you iPods and you know, Lincoln Continentals and whatever else. So it was trapped in its own success. Uh, and then cable came along, and they somehow figured out how to make people pay $30, $40, $50, $70 a month for what you used to get for free. And the only way they could figure out to do that was to give you stuff you didn't have before. Some of that was stuff you know, that you know, had some utilitarian purpose. There's now a 24-hour news channel. There's a and all of its attendant talking heads, you know, some purpose with a small p. Um, there's, uh, there's a weather channel. There, you know, there's, there's cooking channels. There's, there are things that are sort of practical application of television to everyday life. But finally they figured out, you know what? What if we let the writers loose and just let them do stuff that networks won't do? It's counter-programming to the networks. And then they figured out something even better, which was if we let them loose and we don't have advertisers, we don't care if everybody watches that is, you know, that is like, uh, that's a Magna Carta for writing on television. That, that's unbelievable. You know, wait a second. I don't have to look at my Nielsen ratings. I haven't looked at a Nielsen rating in, in years. It, it, I remember when, when The Wire aired and we, our first episodes came on the air, Carolyn Strauss, I looked at the numbers. I looked at, you know, how, how modest our numbers were on Sunday night. And I said to, to, to the, my boss at HBO, I said, I said, what do you think? And she says, oh, it's a cute little number. Don't worry about it. That was her phrase. It's a cute little number. Um, and, you know, by and large, what happened was they constructed a model where if you tell a story that brings some people into the big tent, some people are going to order HBO or Showtime or Stars or whatever because they can't get this programming anywhere else. And if you're bringing some of the people to unask their, their $12.95 a month, then you're an asset. You know, maybe it's not as many people as The Sopranos. Maybe we don't have as much. But if, if, if there's some accumulative bit of, uh, of benefit to us and, and maybe you're getting some good reviews, so there's some zeitgeist, um, okay, you're in the club, and we're not going to bother with you. And we're not going to try to make, grow your audience in a panic. We're not going to say, you, you know, blow something up, put a gun to somebody's head, you know, hire prettier actresses, whatever. The, the, the network notes cease to exist. All of a sudden... It was like, it was as if nobody was paying attention. You know, we, the writers would show up in the room, we'd write what we wanted to write, we'd put it on the, we'd film it, we'd put it on the air, and there was no notes. There was no stress, there was no, what are you going to, you know, it's, oh my God, where are you going? What are you, what are you trying to say? And also, we, since we didn't care what, what anyone, you know, if somebody's unhappy with the outcome, be they a viewer, there's certainly no advertisers, but, you know, it'd be, we wrote the outcomes for, for ourselves, for what we wanted to say about the world. We didn't care that, you know, how, how, how is somebody going to write a dark story? How is somebody going to critique uh, where we're going as, 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 a, as, a, 
as a republic or as a culture. How is somebody going to do that when in the next minute we have to reassure you that we're going to be all right so that you will, you'll buy some more stuff? You know, that was the problem with TV. The, the advertising dictated a certain outcome. It dictated, uh, you know, don't, don't kill the kid. Don't kill the lady. Don't, you know, make it good at the end. Solve the murder. You know, redemption, redemption, redemption. Most over, oversold thing in American popular culture is redemption. Um, nobody was saying you couldn't tell a dark story on HBO because they really didn't care. Uh, that was not where they were putting their, you know, there was no advertiser to appease. And so all of a sudden, I was working somewhere where, you know, somewhere, I guess seven, eight, nine years into the, into the gig, I had to say, I'm not a reporter anymore. I, I can, you know, I'll actually say it out loud. I, I write for television. Um, I'll say it, well, I, you know, I, I usually had a caveat where I said it's, it's HBO really, really quickly. <laughs> but, but even that, you know, um, and, and, and I have to say that was the other thing that, that, that they allowed me to do, which um, was incredibly liberating. It was even more liberating than I felt at the newspaper. At the newspaper, even if you tried to do good journalism, you would see things over the course of your career that were so apparent, yet so editorial in the sense of you were venturing an opinion. After covering the drug war for four or five years, I realized that the drug war was not merely dysfunctional, not merely ineffective. It had become, it had morphed into a war on the American underclass. But to say that out loud in a news column um, was problematic. It, it's hard because the professionalism of journalism is there for a reason. The rules are all there for a reason. You know, opinion is, is you know, uh, uh, a very delicate thing when you're reporting. Um, everything has to be uh, empirical. It, it is, it's not quite academia. You know, I don't mean to suggest more for journalism than I ought. But, but at a decent paper with, 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 with editors who are concerned, you know, merely saying that something like, you know, this is a war on the poor is provocative as hell. You might be able to get away with it on the op-ed page, but you can't get away with writing articles from that point of view. And yet I believed it firmly. And I believed it, having come from a point of, of view where when they first gave me the police beat, I believed that the war on drugs was in, uh, a necessary in inevitability. Um, yet when I went to television, you could basically say what you wanted and say it about the events of the day and about, about the issues of the day and nobody at HBO really cared. I mean, it, it, was, it was that, you know, there were, there were only two rules. Have a take and, and try not to suck. You know, try to be good at it. Try to execute. That was, that was as, as basic as it was. And that was incredibly liberating. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that, that television drama should replace journalism. But in some ways, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the aggressive journalism that used to call something by its real name has been leached out by, by standards of professionalism that have, have been used once again to, you know, let's not offend anyone. Let's, let's land this thing in the middle. Let's, let's, let's let the, the average reader of the Baltimore Sun or the Philadelphia Inquirer or the New York Times, you know, and let, let's leave them someplace to stand. And you couldn't really tell a story where you embraced an alternative point of view. Like, for example, the people being policed by the drug war vast majority of coverage of the drug war, somebody standing by somebody in law enforcement. 
or they're, they're interviewing the drug czar, or they're, you know, they're, nobody begins with the premise of maybe this whole thing is a farce, maybe it's all wrong. You know, you don't begin there. And in fact, you really don't begin there because uh, most of the journalists assigned to cover such a, uh, such a low-level beat are, are in their 20s. You know, you, you're angling to get to something dignified as fast, more dignified as fast as you can. Well, here was HBO saying, just, you know, do you have, do you have a story you want to tell? Um, I probably have gotten more truth across in a fictional uh, drama about Baltimore than I did in 12 years of reporting. And I'm proud of some of the reporting, but some of it is stilted in that, you know, on this hand, on the other hand, you know, experts say, well, you know, in that, in that nodding analytic tone that, that modern journalism felt the need to adopt because, uh, God forbid, they should, they should walk a newspaper out to an actual opinion and, and, and dare it, you know, even if it was an informed opinion. You know, people like uh, Mencken, uh, my own newspaper, I don't think they could get printed today. I think if, if somebody came up with Mencken's tone uh, and, and, you know, a guy who called, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the things he said, but, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was a pathological liar. I mean, he, you know, he, when, he, when he was angry, he was, he was crazed. Um, and the Baltimore Sun would, you know, take the letters to the editor and just nod and keep going. But that was the 20s and the 30s. And, and, and a lot has changed, and, and now, you know, now, you, now you can't even, uh, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a culture today where people are throwing around the word class war uh, as if it's anathema. You're going to raise taxes on the rich, it's a class war. And they're arguing over this term as if, you know, there isn't a journalist who stood up yet in the last 48 hours who said, of course there's a class war going on. And, and uh, you know, the working class and the middle class are losing, and they've been losing for 30 years. You know, this is just another battle in the class war. Maybe you'll lose one for once. You know, nobody's actually saying that. They're arguing over whether or not it is a class war because uh, the tonalities of journalism are so neutral. Um, so they, they, they threw me into this pond, and the pond was changing, and it was just it was great swimming around. How we got to make the wire is... Uh, it's just wonderful, benign neglect, you know. What, what, even at HBO, where, God bless them, you know, they, they did nothing but write by the show, but we were visited once in Baltimore by an exec. One day, a week before we shot the pilot, Carolyn Strauss showed up, checked to see everything was in order, had a meeting over the budget, flew out the same day. To get a guy to, from L.A. or New York to come to Baltimore, Basically, they're, if they're coming from L.A., their flight has to be on the way to Paris and it has to crash. <laughs> you know, maybe if we were filming, you know, at one of the lots in L.A. or we were filming in someplace really nice, but, you know, nobody wanted the junket. I've seen more guys on Treme coming down to New Orleans, especially around, around time for uh, Mardi Gras. You know, that's when they all start coming in, like, you know, in waves, the HBO people. But uh, Baltimore, no. There was just, they had this show out there in Baltimore and... and and it's something about drugs. I don't know, you know. Um, and by the time anyone figured out that we really had any kind of a plan and that we really did regard having 50, 60 hours of, of, of time as being an incredible storytelling gift, you know, not to mention the sheer money involved in making something like The Wire, um, which even though it had a modest budget, 
by by television standards is ex you know is expensive to make by human standards. Um, you know they they uh, they really let us alone, and and they they did it in such a way that when it, they realized that we had a plan finally and that we were going somewhere, um, they let the plan speak for itself. There was a point after the third season when we thought we were going to be canceled. Not necessarily because our ratings had, had collapsed. I mean, we, we, we were getting the same modest ratings as before, and the DVDs had barely come out at that point. They were slow getting the DVDs out. But Chris Albrecht looked at it and he said, it ended so well this year at the end of season three. We, we finished the, the, the Barksdale arc after three seasons. He said, we've got, and, and the reviews we got this year, I've never seen reviews like that. Why go on? We know we're not going to have a hit. He's right. I mean, on some level, he's right. We know, we know it's never going to be a hit. And what we, know, what we also know is we're never going to get better reviews. So let's be careful. This is his exact words. Let's be careful not to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory here. We can, we can go into the sunset. And listen, you know, we can give you $35, $40 million, make another show. Maybe that one will be a hit. You know, we, we've, seen, we've seen the mountaintop on this one, and it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a foothill. So, you know, think about it. And, and I called Carolyn, you know, the show's patron, one of the show's patrons. I said, you know, are we canceled? I mean, oh, my God, I, you know, we have such good story ideas to finish the show. She said, I think you're canceled. Um, but if you want to have a meeting face-to-face, -face, we'll sit down. And, you know. So I went out to L.A., and what I had was a binder of stories. And it was basically all of the episodes for seasons four and five. And uh, like a guy doing pantomime or, or, or shat wall shadows, I literally was in Chris's office for about an hour and a half acting out, you know, there's going to be these kids, right? And it's school, and it's a middle school. You know, and, then, and then we're going to end on the meet, and then there's a reporter. And, and, I, you know, and, and he sat there, and, and I thought I was losing him, but at some point he started asking questions about seasons four and five. Um, I can't tell you how absurd that is by, by the nature of television. First of all, an hour and a half, that's like, you know, that's like the space between two world wars in, in, the, life of, in the life of anybody in, in L.A. But, but more than that, um, we were arguing about story. We were arguing about, you know, not arguing, we were discussing story. You should let this go on because we're building the city and we're making an argument about where we're going and who we are that you should let finish. Um, and we won't embarrass you. The, the, you know, we know where we're going. Here's where we're going. Please let us finish. And I flew back to Baltimore, and the next day we, we were picked up again. Um, I didn't have any argument to all of his very valid marketing logic. We, you know, we, we didn't immediately become a hit. Uh, we, we, we never were a hit. Um, by the way, we got reviews that said we were slow um, in the beginning. Uh, we went, uh, the reviews were not uniformly great in the beginning. They were actually kind of mediocre. Um, and by the end, um, we were pulling some of the worst Sunday night numbers we'd ever seen because the NFL had counter-programmed football. So, you know, it wasn't as if I had any argument for the commercial. But somehow, um, they remembered what their brand was and what they were selling. And improbably, there was a little corner of television, and there is a little corner of television that's selling story. So, yeah, it, it, it is fun to be introduced by uh, people who understand comparative literature far better than I do, 
who are speaking about Aeschylus and the wire. Um, the truth is, we read Aeschylus, and there's some Aeschylus in there. You, you're right. Um, there's a little bit of Aeschylus in there. Um, and, and some Sophocles, you know, no Aristophanes. You know, not, no funny boy. Um, but there is, you know, we, we, stole, we stole thematically from the Greek plays and, and from the, the tragedies. And if you go to see, uh, if you ever go see a, a production of the play The Persians, um, look for it, look for large chunks of it, at least in terms of theme, in Generation Kill. Um, because we've stayed on theme. And I say we, because I get to do these gigs and I get to stand up here and it's, it's, it's you know, very gratifying. But tel uh, television and film, and film in particular, are, are, um, are very much uh, communal. Um, you write a scene, it just exists as paper. Um, I could tell you how good it is. I could act it out up here badly, but it doesn't mean anything until you, somebody figures out how to block it, shoot it, cast the right people, and then edit it properly. And, um, and that's a whole lot of bodies, not to mention the fact that the writer's room is, is five or six, seven or eight smart people arguing with each other all the time. So it's not one guy, um, you know, though I've run a long way on it. And, and don't tell that to the MacArthur people. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sharing. Um, but, uh, but there, you know, we, we've tried to stay on theme, which is this is television about uh, the end of empire. Um, the Wire is about the end of the American century and where we're at. And so is Generation Kill and so is Treme. Um, it's a very dark story. I think it's bearable and, it, and we realize the need to be entertaining because otherwise we won't have any audience and that won't do. But if all we thought we were doing was entertaining, um, it would feel like I'm supposed to go back to anything other than what I'm doing. It would feel like I'm supposed to go back and be a police reporter, for God's sakes. Uh, I didn't wake up as a child in my bed, you know, as, as, a, as a young adolescent and say, I think I want to write for television, you know, and, and have a television show. That was, that, you know, I think that my, saying it out loud would have horrified me. Um, I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted, I wanted to argue about, in, in my house, argument was sport. And uh, it was how we... Uh, it was how we arranged the family dialectic at points. Maybe not argument, debate, debate. And the idea of being in a newsroom, um, when I had to leave the Baltimore Sun and had to, to go somewhere else and to make a living, what I missed most was uh, all of us with our feet up on the desk, reading the paper, arguing about what it all meant. Um, it mattered to me. I mean, I don't know why. Lots of people tune it out, but for me, it was, it was just, it's what I wanted to do. So the idea that you would then find yourself in television with the job of entertaining people seems a misery. Um, just, a, just a misery. Um, they made it possible to argue about ideas. So that's what The Wire really is. is it, it, it's, a very, it's a very dry, yet angry missive about about how power and money have routed themselves and what's left of our republic. Um, the good news is it's only going to get worse. Um, you, know, you see why I don't do a full hour of politics. Um, but, but 
I think it is going to get worse, and I think in some ways, I wish it weren't so. I, I would like it if 10, 15 years from now, um, if the wire is hyperbolic and, and seems like, like an artifact of a, of, of, of a peculiar time, and, and, and it seems as if it was an overstated critique of what's left of, of, of the American experiment. I'd, I'd love that to be the case, because uh, I happen to be American, and, and I want to see the game on Saturdays like everybody else, and you know, not have bad stuff happen to me and my family and my friends, and you know, I'm, I'm as vested as anybody in the room. I just don't think it's the case. I think that we, uh, we've given ourselves over entirely to the notion that um, unencumbered capitalism and profit are the, de are, are the defining uh, metrics for our society. Uh, and we've lost track of the fact that while those things, you know, while, while capitalism is perhaps the only meaningful tool in the toolbox uh, for creating mass wealth, um, it's just that. It's only a tool. And it's not a way to build a just society. And it, and it, and it can no way assert for a just society. The market can't right anything. The market can wrong anything. It can destroy an industry. It can cripple a society. It, 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 it can eviscerate uh, the, the, the remedy for a societal need just as fast as it can exalt anything worthy. Uh, there's profit in both. And I'm at Princeton. If I could, if I could run down and tackle uh, Paul Krugman, um, who I very much admire, um, I would ask him this question. Because I'm not, I'm not a Wall Street guy. I'm just, you know, somebody who uh, writes television shows. But I would ask him this question, because it fascinates me. Is, is, you know, we started the wire when WorldCom was going on and, and, and some other things, and, and these outliers of what was coming in 2008, where we figured out that um, people were, you know, in the, in, the, in the classic American fashion, they were calling something gold that was shit. And they were selling shit and calling it gold and, and making a lot of money doing it until, you know, until, until a few people figured it out and then they were running like thieves. Um, but at the time, there seemed to be something empty and callow at the core of, of who we'd become and who we started to become in, as early as 1980. Um, and it, it, we, you know, Ed felt it echoed in how he was... Ed Burns, my partner working on it, who had been a police officer and a school teacher, he felt echoes of it in, in the shit for gold theory uh, of, of progress, or of, of faux progress. He felt it in the police department and in the Baltimore school system. I felt it at the Baltimore Sun, you know, wherever the, the currency of, of progress and, and greatness there uh, was, quote unquote, impact, you know, sort of manufactured prizes, and, you know, not actually covering anything, not actually figuring out how anything worked or didn't work which is gaming the system and, and padding the resume. Wherever you looked, it seemed like, you know, if there was, a, if there was an honest metric for measuring progress and, and, and within any institution, there, it felt like there was, you could find six, seven guys in the basement figuring out how to, how, to, how to juke it, how to make the test scores go up in the third grade and then not worry about the fifth grade so that the politician could run on the third grade, how to make crime disappear when you weren't, in fact, making crime disappear. Now, these are the things I saw covering the city. And that felt like what we wanted to write about. And that's what the, that's what the wire 
and, and all of its all the stuff we've done since then has been about. It's been about this hollowness at the core of who we are. And at any given moment, if you begin to question the free market and begin to suggest that something other than unencumbered capitalism needs to have, needs to hold sway in this country, um, you, are, uh, you are instantly marginalized. Um, you know, I mean, the shocking notion that we might want to care for all of our citizens on a basic level and provide health care, they're tossing the word socialism around as if it, and to great effect. It was like a game of tag. Don't get caught being tagged a socialist. What is group health insurance other than a singular act of socialism? Do we all believe in group health insurance purchased through you know, the faculty members here? You get it through the university, right? We all believe in it. If you don't believe in group health insurance, fine. Go out and pay all the doctors yourself. If you get sick, pay the hospital yourself. If you need surgery, pay them yourself. Otherwise, if you believe in group socialism, if you believe in a group health care, you're a socialist. You believe in socialism. The idea that a bunch of people are going to get together and because some of us, more of us are healthy than sick, we're going to be able to afford our health care and we'll be able to pay for the sick ones with all of our dues. I got news for you, that's socialism. And yet, the whole notion that we might that America might be this collective, that we might that all of our futures might be intrinsically tied together, um, was was death, you know. And and capital put together about four hundred fifty million dollars worth of lobbying money, and, and they went to work. And so that that's where we live. You know, I look upon the Citizens United decision as the Dred Scott decision of our age. So, not to end on a bad note, what can we do? <laughs> What's the solution? Well, it depends on who you are. Um, if you're in the other America, the one that's increasingly left behind, the one in six Americans that live in poverty, the people who've been utterly divorced from our economic model for generations and are now extraneous Americans, if you live in West Baltimore or North Philadelphia or East St. Louis, um, you might want to throw a brick. Um, and that sounds flippant, but I don't mean it flippantly. The bricks would have been thrown long before now, but uh, uh, almost as if it were a plan, we've managed to narcotize our underclass pretty damn well. And so they're a little busy chasing over the scraps of the drug trade. You know, in Baltimore, um, where 50% of the uh, adult African-American males are unemployed. I mean, think about that number. 50% are unemployed. That's not an economic system that works. That's not. That's, that's another America, different from your own. Um, in that place, the drug trade employs thousands, ten thousands, it's a million dollars a day in retail at a minimum. 20, 30,000 addicts in a city of maybe 630,000 there. Um, that's a huge undertaking. Telling, telling a 15-year-old kid not to go to work in that environment on the drug corners is like telling, uh, telling a kid not to go be a steel worker in, in Birmingham in 1950 you know, when the mills were operating. That's what it is. It's a factory. And if you look at these places and you think about what we're doing, throwing a brick might actually do something. Now, it's bad for the, whoever gets hit. I'm not denying that. You don't want to be the guy hit with a brick. But the times where America righted itself and asserted for the, the notion of, uh, of, of, of that we were a utilitarian experiment, Haymarket, the Flint lockout, the 68 riots, 
these are moments that actually transformed the way in which we looked at ourselves and what was required of us as a society. Uh, everyone wants to remember how bad the 68 riots were and the scars that it left in the downtown. Well, a riot is always a bad thing. But in 68, if you think about, the if you, if you think about the, what, what was the affront that caused the riot, if you think about the status of African Americans in 1968, if you think of the betrayal that the assassination was, um, if you think about these things for a moment, and you think about what, what the cost was of the riots, there was certainly some, some life lost, but by and large it was a property riot. And it was an announcement, almost a declaration to the rest of America, we will not take this anymore. And if you look at what happened in the 70s and the programs that came in, the UDAGs and stuff that actually rebuilt the city, pro housing programs, anti-poverty programs, it had an effect. The Haymarket had an effect on how organized labor was perceived. If not the riot, then hanging the wrong people after the riot, or the bombing, hanging the wrong people for the bombing. Um, on some level, when you push people too far, that's when change actually is plausible. Until that point, I'm not sure anything changes for them, for the other America. For us, it's more complicated. Uh, I, I'm here in, in Princeton, and the people here are, by and large, uh, I would expect, are, have their sights set on, on the, the functional America, the part, the, the, the part of the, of the uh, of, in, in, in our schizophrenic country, the, the, the part that is still viable in every sense. And that world's being shaped for you. The tax code is being shaped for you. You, know, you who can afford tax lawyers, you who can figure out how to game the system. You know, charge everybody a percentage of their gross income and basically just say, you know, a smaller percentage than you pay and say, we're all going to kick in together. No, sorry. Too democratic, too easy. We're going to play a game with it. You know, we're going to make a million loopholes. You play the game. If you're one of us, you'll figure out the loopholes. If you're one of them, you're a schnook, and you know, we're, we're not in it for you. Um, the game's being worked for you in terms of, uh, of educating you for where the economy is going, as opposed to dumping you in the Baltimore City school system, which is basically educating you for the corners. Um, so the question for, for everybody here on, in this America is, what do you, you know, what, at what point do you stand up and assert for the fact that you're part of a collective? That without calling, if it bothers you to call yourself a socialist, at least admit that you're part of a society. That we're all either going to get there from here or we're going to get to someplace very ugly with a lot more gated communities and private cops to protect the shit that, that you have that they don't and that they can't possibly get. You know, the last decade was zero job growth. It was a dec more decline in, in, in the in the ability of the American family to provide. And it's going to get worse. You know, we don't need these people. We don't need 10 to 15% of our workforce anymore with the economy we've constructed. And we're not willing to lay out anything for, for other, than, other than the drug corners. At least with the drug corners, I guess we figure we can make whatever ancillary money we can by locking them up and privatizing cor uh, corrections and pretrial. And so we've become the jailingest country on the face of the earth. There are more people in American jails, more raw people, I'm not talking per capita, more people in American jails than in China. And by and large, 
when I started as a police reporter, not by and large, when I started as a police reporter, prison population was 530,000 in this country. It's now approaching, I think, two and a half million. When I started, 34% of the uh, inmates in federal prisons were violent. Now it's 7%. More nonviolent drug offenders, more incarceration. We, we, you know, and of course, it doesn't work. It's draconian, but it doesn't work. So for the people here, you've got to decide which side you're on, in a way. Which America, you know, because you can get yours, and you can, you can get to where maybe they can't get you. And, 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 you know, maybe you won't get hit with a brick. And maybe, maybe if they stay narcotized long enough, the bricks will never come. I don't know. Um, but ultimately, that's the society we've been building since 1980. And that's what The Wire's about. It's, it's about how power and money route themselves around the problems, how we can't even recognize the problems anymore through our own, uh, you know, through our own reliance on, on, on the systemic that doesn't work. You know, it's not about electing the right guy. It's about the fact that the, 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 republic, the republic itself has been purchased. And if you think it's bad now, wait till we feel the full effect of Citizens versus United. Because they've basically said sociopaths, which is what, corporation is, it's a sociopath. I mean, think about it, right? What is it? If you had a person who felt an absolute obligation to its very core to maximize profit every three months, to earn the maximum amount of profit so as to appease its own sense of duty, regardless of its effect on its workers, regardless of the effect on the environment, regardless of the quality of the product it puts out, as long as, every th as long as every three months they can show the maximized amount of profit, what would you call such a person? Well, that's the fiduciary responsibility of a corporation is, is, is to do that. You'd call them a sociopath. Uh, we basically said, let's allow the richest, most moneyed sociopaths in our society to give as much money to purchase as much of, of the political infrastructure and our capacity for reform as they possibly can. So, you know, you get, you get what you pay for in this country, and, and they're paying for the government. Um, if you watch The Wire, and you're just liking you some, some Omar or some Stringer Bell, that's good, as long as you bought the DVDs or you shoplifted them, because, you know, they, they, we get paid either way. Um, but, but, you know, Maybe, maybe you want to go through it a second time and sort of look, you know, you, I, it, okay, it's not that deep. You won't find Hegel and you won't find uh, Kant, but you will find a little bit of Marx's critique. Um, Marx may not have had a clue about what the solution was, but I don't think anyone's refuted his critique of, of the excesses of capitalism. You, you read it now and, you know, he was on it. Um, so you, you'll find a little bit of that. You'll also find uh, some, some sense of, what the power of catharsis and Greek tragedy and, 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 and what that can do dramatically. Uh, and you'll find little bits everywhere of paths of glory, which I had forgotten that that's where we met. Um, for those of you who haven't seen Paths of Glory, go out right away and rent it. Um, I think maybe the most important political film of the 20th century. Uh, it's about institutions and individuals. It's set in the First World War, uh, but Think about it in a broader context and think about what it's saying about the state of, of, of modern man. Um, 
It really is about what happens in those moments where capital triumphs over labor unequivocally. In that case, it's in a military setting, but in our own lifetime, it's happening across the board. And you know, I would argue that this country became great. You know, John Lewis said that the future of America is the future of labor, and sadly, he was exactly right. Um, we became great when we created, when we took hungry working class and transformed it into a consumer class of working class and middle class families that had discretionary income. It was a very brief period in history, but we became a world power because we made it so that most of our people could buy a lot of stuff. That's our economy. That's what we're, that's what we're left with. And we've been dismantling that since 1980. I'll leave you with one little metaphor that I thought was perfect that nobody in the media thought to do. Do you all remember when um, uh, Fell, fell asleep in the tower at, at, at the airport in Washington. There was only one guy in the tower. Y'all remember that? Okay, they reported it like, you know, this is just, this is crazy. There's only one guy in, on, on duty in the tower and he fell asleep and, 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 and Michelle Obama's plane was trying to land and, you know, and, and they had to reroute this. And, and nobody, I didn't, I didn't see it anywhere. I mean, maybe I missed it, but I, I kept looking for days and days. Did anyone pick up on this? was the beginning of the end for organized labor, which was the only um, thing preventing you know, the health of organized labor and the fact that you know, it's not that unions should win every fight, and it's not that companies shouldn't win some of them too, but when, they, when, they are, when, they're, when they're stressing each other is probably when your economy is in a state of, uh, of a certain degree of health. Um, the beginning of the end for organized labor was the Pacto strike in 1980, which Reagan broke by government fiat. And it was the moment when uh, the alliance, the, at least the marginal alliance between organized labor and, 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 and government came, came unhinged for, 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 for the very first time and, and, stay, and it stayed that way. And he broke the PATCO union and now they, they're not organized and they have nobody to represent their interests and so there's one guy left in the tower at Reagan and he, doesn't, he's not only, he has to work a 12-hour shift or whatever it was or a nine-hour shift and he fell asleep at three in the morning. And that's the joke. It was at Reagan. He broke, he broke the union. He, 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 he created a whole class of, of servile labor where, where there used to be people who could assert for their own worth and their own dignity. And they named an airport after him. And now, three decades later, you know, there's the one guy trying to stay awake without backup. You know, they're dead. They've cut it to the bone. They're, they're I think, 1,200 air traffic controllers down off of what they should be. And the guy uh, sitting in the tower at Ronald Reagan Airport is trying to pin his eyelids up because the, the first lady's plane might be coming. It was beautiful. It was be it's like you can't, it, it's poetry. If you're a journalist, if you're a columnist, it's poetry. Nowhere, you know, again, don't get me started on the media. Um, hopefully I didn't use all that. Yeah, no, we got, a, we got like 15 minutes for questions, thank God. Thank God. Because yeah, I would not leave you without I would not leave you without at least fourteen minutes to so that we can go off on Omar. It's our jobs. So anybody
could you discuss the uh, origins of Treme? Pardon? The origins of Treme. Okay. Uh, the origins of Treme, the, 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 uh, the personal origins are, I started going to New Orleans in my late 20s, off and on. Kept going sort of more and more often. Had great affection for the city. And I was working on Homicide with Eric Overmeyer, uh, my co-producer on, on Treme. And we found out that we both were in love with New Orleans. He actually had a house there. I'd been going there. And, and, and we, we spent too much time when we should have been working on Homicide scripts with our feet up on the desk, you know, playing records for each other. Um, and we said to ourselves, this is back in the, oh, God, this is early 90s, mid-90s. said, wouldn't it be great to do a show in New Orleans, about, about New Orleans? And we said, yeah, what's the show about? And then we stood there looking at each other stupidly. For, um, we, we couldn't begin to fathom what we would make the show about. Katrina made it possible. Katrina put New Orleans back in the mindset of people in, in, New or in Los Angeles who'd never been there. You could actually go in and have a meeting about doing a show in New Orleans for a minute. You had to get in there like, while, while Katrina mattered for, you know, for the minute that it mattered. And we did. Um, and we tried to pitch it, and we tried to explain the idea, uh, and I think we did a terrible job of it, and they allowed us the chance to write a pilot, I think out of kindness, because The Wire um, had gone well, and, and they, were, they were not inclined to be so rude as to say, no, we don't want that. But I, I'm not sure they wanted that. Um, but what we, what we ultimately settled on after Katrina was, first of all, let's pay attention and watch and see what's going on in New Orleans. Because we didn't know what the show was even at, at we, just knew, we still just knew we wanted to do it, and now we had a, an order, or at least for the scripts. And, and the next step was to see what happened in New Orleans. And what happened, in shorthand, is, uh, while well, once again, uh, American governance and, 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 and American capital uh, saw um, no real reason uh, to dive in, roll up its sleeves and dive in and save a great American city. Uh, the culture of the place itself, that which is unique to New Orleans, saved it. As improbable, uh, a, if you were counting on the things with which you would rebuild an American city, culture is not one of them. You wouldn't think so. And yet it was culture that did it. And that spoke to me because I feel like I'm, you know, I love the city. I love city. I live in Baltimore still. I love the idea of the American city. I think it's, it is, it's, it's, the, it's the best that we can be. It's the worst that we can be. But we're either going to figure it out or, or we're going to fail as a society. You know, I mean, I loved when the, the, the I loved when uh, the Republicans had their convention and they talked about the real Americans um, living in small town, small town values. You know, I sat, I sat at home and watching it, you know, clicking my remote, furious, saying, fuck small town values, you know. <laughs> they, they can't help us, you know. I live in Baltimore. I live among real Americans, you know. 80% of Americans live in, in metro areas, oriented towards cities or in cities. Either we figure out big city values and we make them stick or we're done. You know, the, Hamilton won that argument over Jefferson years ago. <laughs> You know, we're not going back to an agrarian pastoral perfection. We're, 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 we're in the city. And the cool thing about the city is how, you know, is, is the, 
a lot of, you know, not, not to get touchy-feely liberal about it, but the multiculturalism has given the world the best of America. You know, if, if we're wiped out tomorrow, off the, if, 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 if we disappear tomorrow, what would we be remembered for in the rest of the world? Um, constitutional democracy, we, didn't, we haven't exported as much of that as we'd like to claim. In fact, we've often exported a lot of the opposite. Uh, baseball, sorry. Latin America, yes. Pacific Rim, yes. Not a universal. Um, what's that? You know, the musical, Oklahoma. Well, it's an American opera. You know, the, the comic book, t uh, don't say film. The Germans invented it. Come on, credit, you know. Hollywood is marketing, and, and we do it better than anybody, but you know, film, would ex film culture would exist if we didn't in various places. What we gave the world, and the American city gave the world, is African-American music, is jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop. All of it stems from an eight-square-block area of New Orleans uh, and from Congo Square that only could happen because West African rhythms and, and, uh, and, and cadence met with uh, European instrumentation and arrangement. Um, as, as improbable a, a marriage, a cultural marriage, as you could have conceived before it happened, and yet once it happened, it's probably the greatest American legacy. Wherever you go in the world, wherever you go, if they've got a jukebox, you know, Michael Jackson or John Coltrane or, or, or uh, uh, Smokey Robinson or somebody's going to be on it, and they're going to be American. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's a, a, a moment of incredible cultural permanence, by, by, if anything, about a young country like us is permanent. And that's New Orleans. And there, it's, it's not like a museum piece. It, every day in the street, something new is happening musically. And, and so to me, the music was a metaphor for what's valuable in the American city and, and, and why we have to figure this out and why we're only going to succeed if we embrace the fact that this is our future. I'm not calling on people. Somebody else has to. I'm not making anybody mad. Yeah, yeah you, you said that um, basically Baltimore inner city schools are educating kids for the corners now, and you focused for a whole year on middle school in, in the wire. So can you expand on what's wrong with education in the inner city right now, and if we don't want to give up, what we can do to fix it? Well, you can't take it in, in fact, you can't speak to the schools without speaking to the existential crisis on the part of the people you're putting in those schools. I didn't meet a lot of stupid kids. I met a lot of undereducated kids. I met kids who were very practical about their world, who understood their world, and were learning for their world in the same way that kids in the rest of America were learning for their world. And they've seen their older sisters and older brothers go to the corner. There were no jobs for them. There were fewer and fewer opportunities. And the school system, which at this point is teaching to test, uh, as they have for the last 15, 18 years. I mean, it began even before, it began with the statewide tests even before uh, No Child Left Behind. No Child Left Behind acceler accelerated in a horrible way. But they were, you know, it, it, there was no sense, there's no honest sense of educating anyone for any job that actually exists. And they know it. You're not fooling them. So whatever they learn that doesn't relate to the world that they know is, you know, it's like trying to, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't even compute. It, it's, 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 
it's a, we're pretending. We're pretending that we need these people. And, you know, on a moral level, we do. We can't be the country we want to be without bringing everybody along, without asserting, you know, I'm, again, I'm with Krugman. If you create jobs for people to go out with shovels and bury money, it's better than what we're doing. Um, I'm, no, I'm serious. I'm a, I'm, you know, me and Krugman and, 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 and you know, John Maynard Keyes. That, that, that's, my, that's, that's my crew. Um, but, but, you know, I listen, I'm, I'm, an, uh, uh, I'm still a New Deal Democrat, you know, and, and I think I always will be. Um, but uh, since those jobs aren't being created, the, the fraud of saying, just say no. Just say no. That was our, I mean, it's so beautiful that that was our sentiment when, when it came to the drug culture, the emerging drug culture, the height of the cocaine epidemic as it washed over American cities. Just say no. You know, what are we supposed to say yes to? Shut up, you know? Shut up. And, you know, do you think that money isn't being made off of this level of incarceration? Um, I'm going to get in the way of questions here, I know. But, but I got to, this is just, just make you mad. I'm, I want, making me mad. You all know who Snoop is? And it goes back to The Wire, too. It's like, it's, it's a double. It's a twofer. You all know who Snoop is, right? The actress who played Felicia, Felicia Pearson. She played Snoop. Okay. She uh, came off the streets, did a great job acting for us. Good soul. Uh, she got arrested a year ago in a wiretap case. She was talking on a wiretap. It, was, it wasn't her phone that was tapped. She was talking to somebody who was a drug dealer. That seems guilt by association to you, but let me explain... She's from East Baltimore. All her friends are drug dealers or ex-drug dealers or drug addicts. Uh, you know, not all, every now and then somebody works in a sub shop. But mostly, it's like it's a company town, and she was talking to somebody. Who, she says the guy owed her $30 that he lent her, and she was asking for, 30, for her to pay, him to pay back the debt. Government said, no, you were asking for 30000 to go in on a package. They produced an informant who we, we will never meet. We don't know who he is, who said... Yeah, I can, I can confirm that. It was definitely a package. She says, and her lawyer says, oh, we want to go to court. We're, we're innocent. We want to go to court. That's not what happened. And, and you know that's not what happened. And we'd love to produce. Let's get that informant on the stand and see how we could possibly know that when I know it isn't true. Now, I, I'll say to you, I don't know if Snoop is telling me, you know, I, I don't know what the truth is. What I do know is I'm supposed to find out in court. Well, what they did to Snoop was, they put, they put no bail on her. She couldn't get a bail. So this is a wiretap case. It's not going to trial for two years. Either rot on the, in women's detention for two years or take a plea. So she started to rot. And finally, her lawyer went back and said, look, what if we have some home monitoring? We'll put her on home monitoring. She's got a job. She's got a movie she wants to shoot in Philadelphia. Can, can you, can you put, put an ankle bracelet on her? Oh, we can do that. Here's a list of the companies that have contracts with the state of Maryland. Pick one. The cheapest one they could find that would handle out-of-state monitoring, $400 a week. So she started paying $400 a week. Now, two years added up. It's $40,000. $40,000 just to get your day in court. Question. If I'm found innocent, do I get the money back? No. No. So what do you want? You want to rot in jail? You want to pay $400 a week? Or, oh, by the way, new plea offer. If you plea and say you're guilty of this, 
three years probation, three years supervised probation, against, I think, a seven-year charge. And you can stop paying for it a week. She'd already paid $10,000, something like that, or $8,000, something like that. She took the plea. She took the plea. You know, and now if her parole, if she's violated for parole, if she's, you know, she misses a meeting, guy decides to violate her, she's going to jail. I don't know if she's guilty or not. I know that's how an innocent person could end up in jail for years at a time, is a system like that. Now, they taught me as a reporter, follow the money. That company out in Towson, $400 a week. Can you explain to me why it costs $400 a week to put on the equipment and, and monitor? We don't have to explain that to you. Can you explain to me how much the equipment costs? You know, how many, how many people do you have at the Baltimore Circuit Court that you have these ankle bracelets on that you're making $400 a week on? I don't have to tell you that either. This is, you know, the, the drug war allows for anything. The drug war is pure profit for some people. Now, we're all paying for that. You know, we're paying for that eventually as taxpayers to, to fight this war. But somebody's getting rich. Somebody's getting rich. That's, that's what the poor mean to America now. The poor, they've managed to take the poor and make them into a profit center. I hope that you know. I hope that makes you. I hope when you next time you see a brick. Thank you.